Let's uh, let's get started. I think that we may be joined by some more people, but I want to take maximum advantage of having Deborah here. As I'm sure all of you know, um, Deborah's area of uh, expertise is uh, Iraq um, and that region. Uh, she covered the Gulf War um, and has now come to us to help us understand what's going on and what's going on now is uh, complicated, as of course we all know. I think it was very interesting today that the New York Times led, the, well, one of the off, the off lead anyway was the announcement that the uh, head of the military wing of the Taliban in Pakistan had been captured in a joint Pakistani CIA effort, and also the, uh, the sort of the story of the unfolding incursion and uh, conflict with the Taliban in Afghanistan in which uh, the Times made note of the fact that a lot of the Afghan village people are helping the Americans and Afghan soldiers uh, find the Taliban and uh, identify the bombs and the booby traps and that kind of thing. In other words, there seems to be, at least according to the New York Times today, some prospect that the popular support that the uh, Afghan government, I think, and certainly the United States has hoped for may well be there against the Taliban, but who knows? This will all be yet to yet to be determined. Uh, Deborah is a, you know, has been a, an award-winning broadcast journalist for a long time at PBS, at ABC, at NPR. She uh, has a distinguished background. She's won the DuPont Award which is the Pulitzer Prize of, of uh, broadcast journalism. And her particular area of expertise, as I say, has been that region of the world. In fact, she hasn't been back to America for quite a while. <laughs> so we're glad to have you back, and we're delighted to have you here to hear what you have to say about what's going on. Great. And I'm so glad uh, at the turnout. Uh, first of all, there's, of course, the weather. But second, it's Iraq. Uh, and uh, <laughs> when we all first started covering Iraq, you could fill an auditorium. But those auditoriums are much more likely to be filled by people who want to talk about Afghanistan. Um, I decided to uh, be a stay-behind reporter uh, and continue looking at Iraq. Um, uh, Alex is right. The Middle East has been my area of expertise. And uh, I had done Iraq, uh, Afghanistan when the, when the Soviets, the Russians, pulled out. And I thought, all right, I've done that war once. I'm not going to do it a second time. Um, so I, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, Iraq and then open it for discussion, because it is complicated, uh, what's happening now. So I, I want to talk about three things. One is what I'm doing here uh, as a Shorenstein Fellow. And, and that is a research paper on the Iraqi media. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized that there's not a lot of research. So it's actually an interesting time to be doing it. The other thing I want to talk about today is what I've been doing for the last three years. And that's researching and writing a book on Iraqi refugees called The Eclipse of the Sunnis. And it's out on March 9th. So you will hopefully get sick of me talking about that book in the next couple of weeks. And the third thing I want to talk about today is what I think is happening in Iraq now. And of course, a hint in that direction is the title that I chose for this talk today, which is Sectarianism in uh, Post-Election Iraq. Because what has happened is sectarianism has emerged again as the major issue, the Sunni-Shia divide in this campaign period. And I got an email last night from a former translator uh, who now is a professor at a university here in the States. And he said that how he sees the election is it's worn and win. And I will get back to that in a minute about what that might mean in the current campaign. But I want to go back just a minute to the elections, the provincial elections in January 2009, because just a little more than a year ago, uh, the, the atmosphere in Iraq was, was much different. It was at a time that the violence had receded substantially uh, in the capital. And the political music of the country, if you will, was, was this new kind of, of unity, uh, an inclusive feeling. Iraqis were tired of the Sunni-Shia divide. It caused so much violence and, and so many deaths that, that people just didn't want to talk about it. And even in August, uh, 
of 2009, the last time I was in Iraq, people were sick of sectarianism. The Shiite political parties, the most sectarian of the political groupings in the country, were in, in retreat because they had delivered nothing while in office. You know, there's still problems with electricity, there's still problems with water. Their ability to govern uh, after a, a rousing campaign, it turned out to be not much. And they were weak. Uh, and the Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Maliki, uh, w was able to play on their weakness. Um, in 2009, the parties that did well, in particular Mr. Maliki's party, were parties that were running on this kind of nationalism. Maliki himself brought Shiites onto his list in the provincial elections. He wasn't running, these were provincial elections, but he brought Sunnis into the list. He even was making overtures to people who were known as expats. Uh, if they were loyal to the state, if they were particularly loyal to his party, that was fine with him. Um, and he did some other things that let you know that Iraq might have been moving towards a more secular outlook. He loosened rules on bars and restaurants. Iraqis could drink again. And this is a country that has a love affair with Arak. Uh, you know, Iraqis have always been drinkers. And during the worst of the sectarian times, you could be pulled over and hauled into a makeshift Islamic court uh, for having two uh, can, empty beer cans in the back seat of your car. Those days were over for people. And they liked it, especially the young. People wanted to have fun again. Um, they wanted to go back to the good parts that they remembered from, even from Saddam's time, when, when people uh, in the evenings you know, went out for a drink. Um, at the time, uh, Maliki himself was moving in this national direction, and he was rebranding himself as, as a nationalist. Um, he was the strong man who could take over from the Americans, he could keep Baghdad safe, and he could make uh, the country prosperous again. And he looked like, uh, after that provincial election, that he was heading for re-election as the prime minister. And I think in Washington, it was kind of seen that this national election would be uh, a way to show how stable Iraq had become uh, and that the country was headed in the right direction. But that was before this ruthless bombing campaign that began in August. I was there in August when, uh, the, for example, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was targeted. Then the Finance Ministry was targeted. Then there were bombs in the Green Zone. And the last in a series in this campaign was the bombing attack on the hotel, the Hamra Hotel, and this rather large complex in Jadria, which is an upscale neighborhood in Baghdad, where not only are the journalists housed, but this is where people, business people, come and stay. Uh, not the oil people, they don't need to stay uh, at the Hamra Hotel. But you know, people who want to open small businesses in Iraq, Europeans who come, uh, other uh, people who arrive to, uh, to work with the NGOs in the country. And so that bombing was also a message, as all the others had been, that Iraq was not so stable. Uh, and it really shook the country, this, this bombing campaign, because there hadn't been one like it uh, in quite some time. And, and it began to work on the confidence of the country, and it certainly undermined Maliki himself as the strongman. His credentials was as, as the security prime minister. Uh, and he couldn't stop these bombings. Uh, and so he was, his, his political career has been at risk. This was also the time that the national lists were announced for the 2010 uh, parliamentary elections. And for the first time, what you started to see were secular parties that had mixed lists. That there might be a Shiite head to the party, but there would be some prominent Sunnis who were beginning to run on these secular lists. Abu Risha, who was the head of the Awakening, the, the Sunni tribes who turned against Al-Qaeda, he was going to run, he is going to run, on one of these lists. It was also at a time that the Iranians were beginning to, to become very concerned about what was happening in Iraq. It was quite possible, as you looked at the new political configuration, that there would be a move away from the dominance of the Shiite parties, that there would be some reconciliation. They were not happy about that. Uh, and they, they, they have been very public about the fact that they want no Ba'athists. Ahmadinejad said this himself in a public speech. No Ba'athists should ever run Iraq again. 
they clearly backed uh, the, the Shiite religious parties, and the, the politics of the country was shifting a bit. Now, in the middle of all of, all of this arrives one of the most remarkable politicians in Iraq. And he's played all kinds of roles in that country, including a spoiler. And, and he dropped a political bombshell into the political process of the country. And this was in January, when Ahmed Shalabi and his protege, Ali Faisal Alami, who is the executive director of the Deep Advocation Committee, they blacklisted 500 candidates. And they disqualified them by accusing them of either being Ba'athist or having links to the Ba'athist party. Not every name of the 500 were Sunnis, but the attack was clearly against these new secular mixed parties. That's where most of the names came from. Uh, but there were enough Sunnis that this aggrieved minority felt that what they were looking at was a witch hunt. And that's the reaction that you're seeing now, uh, that they feel like they're being targeted. Um, What's interesting is both Shalabi and Alami are candidates themselves, and they are running on the Shiite Islamist party. Um, in, in talking to analysts about Iraq, what they say is it's a, it was a move worthy of Karl Rove because it was both brilliant and cynical at the same time. <laughs> and what it showed was a complete understanding of the weaknesses of Iraq's political culture. Um, in addition, it took Washington completely by surprise. They never saw it coming. Uh, and so their reactions have been slow and ineffective. And as the political theater has played out in Iraq, this election, which should have been about corruption, about lack of services, about security, about the role of Iran, about uh, the drawdown of American troops, which all combat troops are to be withdrawn by August of 2010, what this election has become about is what I said, warn and win. Um, that this could be the strategy, this anti-Bathists, Bathists are under the bed, Bathists are coming to get you. This could be the comeback strategy for the Shiite Islamist parties who have nothing to show uh, in terms of, of services and governance, but can certainly win uh, on the votes of fear. And it is a complete reversal of where the country was just a year ago. And it shows how weak the political culture is, um, that it could take an event like banning 500 political candidates to, to turn this whole election into a referendum on Ba'athism, uh, which was essentially rendered uh, defunct in 2003. It may propel these parties back into office, but it is as likely to put off political reconciliation because we are as far away from that today as we were in 2007. Now, if you remember in 2007, the U.S. surge, Atreus's surge, was meant to give enough space in the country for and to, and to keep the violence quiet to allow that reconciliation. And I and others argue that the surge was a tactical success. It actually, at that time, brought the violence down. But it's been a strategic failure. That political reconciliation is still no closer than it was back in 2007, and in fact, may be going backwards. I've been monitoring in my project here the political rhetoric on the media in Iraq, and it's about as subtle as the Willie Horton campaign ads. Uh, in this country a few years ago. It's all about mass graves and pictures of Saddam, um, and it has the ring of the rhetoric that you heard in 2005 when the country was on the brink of an all-out civil war. And it's very worrying to people who are watching, uh, because now the government actually has a state-run media, um, and these messages are, are a, a daily occurrence. For me, the most important part of the story, uh, despite the disqualifications based on arbitrary law, despite uh, no transparency, many of the candidates didn't even know what the charges were against them, and, and some of them had no idea how to make an appeal. Despite all of that, none of the political uh, establishment did anything to stop it. 
nobody stood up and said, you can't do this. Uh, they allowed it to happen because for the most part, it benefited them. <coughs> Um, it, is, it will benefit, uh, well, we'll see, but it, it, it is likely to benefit the Shiite Islamic parties and it's likely to benefit Maliki. And so they, they, they did nothing to stop this. And this is very bad news in, in the year that uh, American troops are, are pulling out because what it may mean is that the consultations over forming a government after March could take up to six months. Iraq could be without a government for, for six months. Um, and, you know, some people worry that it will go back to violence. That's not clear. But this atmosphere in Baghdad has everything to do with what I've been writing about for the last few years, and that is this unprecedented exodus and displacement of Iraqis from 2004 to 2008. Now, <coughs> the numbers are hard to quantify, um, but the best estimates are about one in every six Iraqis is either in exile or displaced. And if you look at the equivalent number, if you look at the American population, that would be 50 million people. And it has that same effect on Iraq. It's, it's a lot of people who left. In 2009, President Obama was the only candidate who actually addressed this crisis of the refugees. And what he said back then, that to end this crisis, to get people to actually come home, to make Iraq stable enough that people would return, um, to their homes would be a measure of the stability of Iraq. And he said it again at Camp Lejeune when <coughs> he announced the accelerated timetable of withdrawal, that, that for him, that the refugee issue was important to solve. And this is perhaps <coughs> two million people outside of the country and two million inside the country who are displaced. But I, I have to argue that by that measure, at this moment in Iraq's history, it doesn't say very much about the country's stability. I, I looked up, there's a, a, a quarterly report that the US government puts out. So I looked up the latest figures. And of the uh, 2,650,000 displaced, only about 20% of them are back. And in the, in the returnees, those who, who are in exile, that number is even lower. There's something about 10% have gone back to Iraq. Now, when I first started uh, reporting on the refugees, I was interested in documenting the exodus because I knew that for Iraqis, exodus is sort of the last resort. This is not a country. This is an inland country. It, Iraqis don't expect to become exiles. That's something that the Lebanese do. It's a small country with a good education system, and if you want to make a living uh, and send money back home to your family, you leave. Lebanese expect to do that. Even Jordanians expect to go abroad. Iraqis don't. And so even uh, for them uh, to leave in, in the kind of circumstances that they were living was, was very painful. And so my idea at the time was that I would call this book um, First Leave Everything You Love. And I, I chose that title because it comes from a Dante poem about exile. And it was a political punishment. In fact, his line is, you shall leave everything you love most. This is the arrow that the bow of exile shoots first. And it seemed a fitting title um, for these people who had to leave the country. But over time, I, I decided that it was better to reflect a more pressing political reality about who these people are. And so now the title of the book is called The Eclipse of the Sunnis because what I realized is I was telling a story about a country that's shedding its diversity. Um, about 60% of the refugees outside the country are Sunnis. About 15% of them are Christians, Yazidis, Mandians. There are Shiites in that mix, there are Kurds in that mix, there are people from mixed marriages in that mix, but the majority of refugees are Sunnis. So the exile story is yet again another example of the Sunni-Shia divide. Those people aren't going home. It's not because it's not safe in Iraq. It's because they don't see a place for themselves in Iraq. And the election campaign simply exacerbates what is already a refugee crisis. Many of them looked to the election in January of 2009 at a moment that reconciliation looked possible. The parties looked like they were widening 
their political scope. It looked like it might be possible for Sunnis who have become an aggrieved minority to find a place for themselves in Iraq. But this election, <coughs> I think, will, will turn back the solution of solving the refugee crisis further than it's, than it's been. And there is a fatigue in caring for these people who have left their country, who are not allowed to work in the places that they've chosen exile. Many of them, many of the women in particular, have turned to prostitution uh, to, to feed their families. Um, one quarter of the refugee population in Damascus is single female households, uh, because so many of the men uh, were killed. That's why they fled in the first place. And for many of them, another sidebar to the Sunni-Shia divide is that many of them are from mixed marriages. And while that was a perfectly acceptable um, thing to do in Saddam's time among the elites, it wasn't even called a mixed marriage. Uh, people didn't sort of ask, are you a Sunni or a Shiite? Uh, people just got married. Um, but, but in the height of the sectarian tension, it was impossible to live in a mixed marriage. And so if your husband was killed and you had to flee, not only would your family abandon you, your in-laws would too. And this was a complete crack in the social system of Iraq. And so these women arrived as exiles with no skills, with no coping mechanisms, and many of them turned to what's called survival sex. I've written a, an entire chapter um, hanging out with Iraqi prostitutes in Damascus, and many of them were you know, professional women who would spend their times in the bathroom before they had to go out on the dance floor, you know, flipping open their phones so that they would show each other pictures of their kids. Um, I mean, these are they're women who you would recognize. Um, and all of that to say that uh, both the refugee crisis and the elections and the sectarian divides divide are connected. Um, and if this was an election, as many in Washington now say, uh, as the, the, the benchmark of how the drawdown will go, then it is a worrying, worrying sign indeed. Um, Let me uh, ask the first question, then we'll, we'll open it up. What is the role of the, you know, emerging Iraqi media, not necessarily the state-controlled media, but the, the media in a broader sense? Are they all complicit in this? Pernicious. I suppose is the headline. Um, the way the Iraqi media developed is uh, the U.S. government paid about $200 million uh, to develop a free media. And there is a state channel um, that is, was, was designed to be, you know, the PBS of Iraq. It's Iraqia and it's, it's the state-controlled media. And I was just looking uh, at something that was sent this morning from Baghdad. Uh, uh, about the, the percentage of coverage. And uh, Maliki's State of Law Party gets the lion's share of coverage on state television. It's not the only outlet. Uh, essentially, what you now have in Iraq is Sunni Sh TV, Shiite TV, Kurd TV, Turkmen TV. Um, and that's what you watch. So your message gets reinforced all the time. You, you, now, you could argue that there's diversity in the media, because if you click through all of those channels, you would see a broad range of opinion. The problem is most people tend not to do that. Uh, and the Iraqi media has developed in the same way that Lebanon television has developed, uh, but not, not as collegial. In, in Lebanon, you also have Sunni <coughs> TV, uh, you know, Shiite TV, but their newscasters staggered five minutes off so if you actually want to see the whole panoply of what everybody thinks, you can click through five minutes apart and see everybody's headlines. Iraq is not as sophisticated as that. Maybe they'll get there. It's not altogether clear. Uh, but they are moving in this direction of the way that Lebanon television works. It's a very sectarian-based television. And Iraqia has, has uh, a budget from the Ministry of Finance, the other powerhouse is outside the country. It's Sharkia television. It's sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Social pressure. <laughs> Tell me who doesn't have a cell phone it's, on uh, in their pocket. It's Scott Joplin. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Joplin's calling you. 
Um, Sharkia TV is kind of Sunni TV, uh, and it was banned in 2005 uh, when, after, when Saddam uh, was executed, the announcers on television were black, and the government took uh, offense at that and kicked them out. Um, and for other reasons, uh, it takes uh, Saudi Arabian money, uh, it has a Sunni slant to its coverage. It, on Ramadan, uh, produces these wickedly funny um, satires, 30-part series. The first one I noticed was Selling the Country. Even when I was there in August, they had one up. Um, uh, their, their best one so far has been um, Who Wants to Be an Oil Millionaire? And they have all the best comedians who are in exile uh, compete uh, for uh, barrels of oil. Uh, you know, they're clever, uh, and, and they can afford to be clever because, you know, the, the, the entire artist community is now in exile, and they're writing this stuff. So the Iraqi media is, is peculiar. There's no, there's no precedent for it, but it is not, it's not an institution that is uh, for state building, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll give you another example. Kurdish television doesn't recognize Baghdad's laws. It is not governed by anything that's happening in Baghdad. It's not licensed by Baghdad. It's licensed under the Ministry of Culture in Kurdistan. And it just completely ignores the national government and goes about its business. It's owned by political parties. There's one for each. Uh, and they control their message in Kurdistan, and they don't give a damn what happens in Baghdad. Uh, <coughs> let me ask uh, students first to, if they have questions, we'll begin with them. Any, yes? Quick questions. One, who is behind, in your opinion, a lot of the violence that started increasing prior to the elections? And why hasn't any of the artistic community started to come back from exile? Pick your bad guy. Um, and you know what was interesting in Iraq, you know who knows who it is? Uh, the Prime Minister said it was Ba'athists in Syria and Al-Qaeda together. Could be. Uh, the uh, head of uh, intelligence who did his job from exile in Jordan, who was fired a few days before the first big bomb went off in, in August, said it was the Iranians. And his logic was, um, a few weeks before the bomb went off, uh, Maliki split from the major Shiite Islamist party and went on his own, and because he thought he could win without them. They had been discredited. They were unpopular. They had done poorly in the provincial elections uh, that you know earlier that year. So Maliki thought, "I'm the strong man. I control the media. I can win without them." And plus, they said, "If you join our coalition, we don't guarantee that you're going to be the prime minister. So, what would be the point?" And so there were some who argued. The Sunni community argued this was Iran's message to Maliki that Shiites cannot be divided. That you all have to be on the same ticket. Um, I, I, nobody knows. There's nobody who's got any credible evidence on, on who. Now, why don't the artists come back? Um, some of them do. Uh, some of the Shiites have come back. Most of the Sunnis have not. Uh, for exactly what I was explaining is that they don't feel comfortable back in their country. And, and so what you see in Damascus is a mix. Uh, you'll see, you know, secular Shiites, uh, Sunnis, Kurds, who many of them have come together and they work for Sharkia Television because it's a job. Uh, but there's a lot of music going on in both Amman and Damascus by this community. It's out on the web. It's, a, it's an amazingly vibrant community considering that they're living on air. I don't know how they support themselves. A lot of times money's being sent from Baghdad to them. Um, or what some families do, uh, not so much in Jordan because they can't, but in Damascus, you send somebody back, one, who will go and pick up everybody's pension or pick up their food rations or take a job for a couple of months, and then that's how the family survives. But that, that community, Lebanon's the same. That's where some really interesting um, artistic work is, is, is being done. Students. Bill? Uh, these people who have been banned from the election, what are they doing? Are they uh, substituting proxies for themselves? And in particular, what is happening to this new party of Ayatollah and Mutlaq? Are they, is this going to survive? Is it going to make a showing in the elections? 
I don't know. You know, I, I really had to wonder when they went after him so hard, when Chalabi and, and Al-Alami went after um, uh, Iyad Alawi so hard, I wondered, he must be doing very well for them because 70 of the challenges were his party and another 60 were to Balani's party. Um, now, when it first happened in January, there were some of those 500 that just, some, what those, those parties did is they, you're exactly right, they just substituted somebody else on the, on the list. Um, what I read this morning that seems to be sticking is uh, Alawi, at least, is saying that he's suspending um, his uh, campaign, which is kind of backwards. Um, I, I, I was talking to somebody in Kurdistan today who said, you know, if I were him, um, I would say, you know, we're under threat, we're under challenge, let's fight them, uh, and, and kind of bring my supporters out. Because the problem with the, these secular lists is their voters are, are soft. You know, they've moved away, they, they, they aren't so motivated by fear and by secularism. And it's possible they'll stay home, which is what's going to undo Alawi. Uh, even more than what Chalabi has done to him. Um, and there's been no call yet for a boycott. But I mean, think about what you have to face, certainly as a Sunni vote, voter. Al-Qaeda's already said that they're coming after you. And there was an attack last week on four or five of the political party headquarters when people came out to rally, either for or against this ban. So you, got, you have to face that. Then you have to face the idea that, you know, the government doesn't really want Sunnis in this government. That's the message that this campaign has sent out. So it's very easy for you to sit around the dinner table at home and say, you know what, they don't want us in anyway. Why, why risk my life to go down and get a, a purple stamp on my phone? That's what the real problem is in this election, is that, that, that people just, you know, give up and don't come out. Uh, the refugee problem seems to be a very significant one, mm -hmm. and um, I wonder if you could just say where most of the refugees are. Um, what has been the U.S. attitude towards the refugees? What has the United States done, and what do you think it should do? Um, I won't give specific numbers because everybody argues about them, and the reason they argue about them is that in each place, only about 10% of Iraqis have signed up at UNHCR, which would be the only way that we would know. You kind of know, the Syrians will tell you there's 1.5 million, and they know because of residency permits, but Iraqis come and go, and they don't undo their residency permits. So. The major countries are, they're in Damascus. That's the biggest bulk of them, maybe a million. There's maybe 500,000 in Lebanon. There's maybe 400,000 in Jordan, uh, another 50,000 in Egypt. I'm not sure what the numbers are in Turkey. Um, the American approach has been in the Bush administration to pretend it didn't happen because to acknowledge a refugee population would acknowledge would be to acknowledge that there was something wrong and that there would be a reason for those people to want to leave. As I said, Obama was the first, he was the only candidate to mention it, and in part because Samantha Powers was, you know, advising him on this, and he listened to her, and he, he you know, he understood. Um, at the end of the Bush administration, uh, mainly because of uh, Senator Kennedy, who was a champion uh, of Iraqi refugees and refugees, period, uh, in his career, did uh, a, a magnificent job in passing legislation to allow Iraqi translators, a large 5,000 uh, 5, a year uh, Iraqi translators, people who worked for the U.S. military and even for the U.S. media to actually have their own status. Um, the problem for all of them is that there has been a huge bureaucracy that first of all had to gear up, and then the uh, Homeland Security put added sec security on Iraqis in particular. Because everybody took to heart what Bush said. If we don't fight them there, we'll have to fight them here. And so that was Homeland Security's notion that we would have Al-Qaeda slipping through uh, among these refugees. So uh, at this moment, there are about 33,000 Iraqis who have come to the United States. Um, and I think over the years that, you know, that stream will continue. What should we do? I think 
that for starters we have to recognize, and, and I don't see them doing this, recognize that this is a Sunni-Shia problem, uh, that, that in addition to a refugee problem. I think we have to recognize that there's going to be a large population, destabilizing population, in the periphery of Iraq for years to come, as long as this sectarianism is not solved. So what do you do about that? How do you make that not a destabilizing population? And those are very hard things to do. Um, UNHCR has had a huge learning curve with this population because they're unlike, there's no precedent for them. They're middle class. So for example, you cannot <coughs> you know, dump a bag of rice and a bar of soap in the middle of a block and think they're going to pick it up. They're picky. They're, ah, 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 ah. I am not. And they've had to learn that Iraqis believe that a cell phone is a human right. And while they can't pay their rent, they will not let their cell phones go unpaid. Um, and so what UNHCR has done is learned how to text when it's time to come pick up your, you know, uh, little cheese packets. <coughs> and they, they actually, I mean, when you go in and see the boxes of what they pack up for the Iraqis, they go to, you know, they, they take care. And then it's all nicely done uh, so that they'll come and get it. Uh, there are very proud people. I mean, you have to almost imagine yourself in this situation um, and how you'd feel about, uh, uh, you know, taking, taking goods from strangers who arrive in your life. Um, I think that the administration is trying to do some things, but I'll tell you, <laughs> we have no leverage in Iraq these days. We really, really don't. <coughs> the UN maybe has a little bit more, uh, and, and they're really trying to do some good work with the IDPs. Um, but the UN is constrained by their security concerns. I went to a small village outside Baghdad with an Iraqi, because they, they have to farm it all out to Iraqi NGOs. They can't even go there. Uh, and by the time he'd gotten to this village where people had actually come back, they'd been in an IDP camp for three years, these people had no water, no electricity. Uh, they had to pay for the kids to go live in a hotel someplace else because typhoid had broken out because they were getting water from the river trucked in. They were living in their, um, their animal enclosures because Al-Qaeda had not only blown up their houses but brought bulldozers in to bulldoze their houses so they had no place to live. And th there's really no agency uh, to, to rebuild this kind of thing. And while the Iraqi government has promised $800 to every IDP that goes home, they don't pay it. Only about 10% of the people have paid it. So it, it is a, a major uh, policy problem, and, and nobody has quite figured out uh, what to do about it. The, um, you, you sort of set the stage for this question. This, the surge sort of gave space and time, and we were hoping for stability, but it seems there's some missing elements. Particularly, it seems like reconciliation would happen would have to happen before you get any kind of true stability. And if you could elaborate a little more on where you are, is who do you think can provide that element? Or are there other elements that need to be in place besides this time and space that we've already sort of used up? Like who is the counterforce that would inject or intervene with the reconciliation process? There may not be one. Um, I think Iraqis themselves are going to have to come to it, but we are now in a moment, I think, of political history where there, there's no appetite for it until after this election. I mean, this, this is an election about power for the next four years. It's a contest between us and Iran uh, for votes. Uh, and there's a lot of people who see th this election, you know, how Iranian influence is Iraq going to be? In, a, in this weak political system. So I think reconciliation at this moment is off the table. It is now going to get much worse before it gets better. It's possible that as the parties come together, because they are going to have to form a government when this is all over, how the, how the law works is whosoever, uh, just whoever has the most votes has the first crack. And most people say that the best any one party is going to do is about 20%, so they're going to have to reach out for partners. The Kurds are going to play a very big role in how this government, uh, because they're sitting up in Kurdistan watching the Arabs rip, rip each other apart and saying, right. more for us. 
So I don't know what element now is possible. I, I think our moment has passed. Uh, that there could have been perhaps more levers pulled on the way up to this election. But I, I don't know. Do you think we have any leverage on the political front anymore? No, I wouldn't think so, personally. I mean, you watch what happened with Biden, and I saw, I saw translations of people on television accusing David Petraeus of being a Bathist, of accusing the Democrats in Washington of being Bathists, that, that the uh, Republicans were pro-Shia, but the Democrats were certainly Bathists. I mean, there's become this crazy logic uh, it's a power it, consolidation as opposed to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. You know, and it may be, I mean, what what I've written about is this notion that Iraq is not quite clear what it is yet. Um, it hasn't, it, its identity is not fully formed. You know, it was a Sunni state in a Sunni system in the region. And, and once that was removed, um, is it going to be, a, 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 you know, aligned with Iran? Is it going to be a new Shi Shiite state that has a, a different way of, of running itself? I don't think we know that yet. So uh, our windows are now passed. Now it's up to the Iraqis. Uh, the, the hopeful signs are that, that some people do see through this, uh, that do see this, this bathism, you know, scary stuff for what it is. It, it's, it's that these politicians don't want to have to answer about where's my electricity, how come I can't get a job, um, why can't I go out at night in my neighborhood. Um, and, you know, we'll see how sophisticated this, this, uh, this population is on, on March 7th. There was a, yes. Um, I'm curious to hear about your experience um, reporting in Iraq. Um, how, you know, given all the security concerns and obviously reporting in a war zone, um, how do you get out of the green zone and um, figure out what's actually going on in the country? We're not in the green zone. Um, we, uh, our bureau is, it was, until it was blown up, um, outside of the Hamra Hotel. Um, Maybe it belonged in the green zone. Yes, well, <laughs> well, that's where some of them are now. I mean, I, two of my colleagues now live in the Talibani compound. That's not great for where journalists should be. Um, you, you leave when you have to. You don't take unnecessary trips. Your car is armored. Um, it's, you know, it's funny when, I hadn't been there since 2005 when it was terrifying to go out and you never wanted to go out and you did it, you know, completely dressed in hijab and, you know, you took off your glasses, rings, anything that would, would make you look like an American. Um, but I came back in 2009 I got on the plane in Jordan. There were women who weren't scarved. I thought, okay, this is different. So I didn't wear one. It was fine. And, and it felt in those first couple of weeks that you could now move around the city. It felt pretty comfortable. But my colleague, Quill Lawrence, who was, I was replacing for his vacation, said it's going to take one incident for us all to remember where we are. And that happened on the 19th of August when the finance ministry got blown up. And everybody went back to this incredible anxiety. And in, in talking to people who were there over the past couple of days, you know, they say, our, our compound got blown up. They were after us. And now it's very, very <coughs> unsettling to go out again, to get up the courage to get in that car, armored though it is, to drive across the city because while nobody's targeting journalists in particular, um, when there's that much random violence, that's what you that's what you worry about. So so it's tough. How do you know what's going on? You have a staff of Iraqis who you you depend on, um, and they 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 help you. Uh, you know, they're the ones who will say, in my neighborhood, we've got you know, I live in a Sunni neighborhood. There's two Shia shop owners. Things were going okay until six months ago, and now nobody will shop. Will you know, go into their store anymore, and they're pretty much barricaded. So that was a story that one of our reporters went and did, because there's no way for us to know. You know, normally as a reporter, you read the paper, you look at other people's sources, that's off, you can't do that. So you do depend on your Iraqi staff, and then you just have tons of phone numbers, and you, and you call people, and you try to do it. You know, it's, it's kind of like those people who work in nuclear reactors where they have their suits on and their hands in, that you kind of feel like that. Um, and, and, you know, you do the best you can. Pat. How do you know who is a Sunni, who is a Shia, who is a Sunni? I never do. 
And, and because it came to us after we'd hired our staff that our translators were Shia and our drivers were Sunni. And n nobody planned that. It just kind of happened that way. If I think about why it happened that way, it makes sense that the Shias were, were more comfortable with the occupation and as it unfolded in the beginning. And so they were willing to step out and, and take the risk of working with Americans. And the Sunnis had been drivers and they needed to work. Um, but you know, they know. They know by names. If your name is Omar, you're a Sunni. If your name is Ali, you're a Shia. Um, you know, there are names that will give you away. Um, and in fact, that became incredibly dangerous in 2005 after the mosque was blown up in Samarra. Um, and sort of the violence had flipped, uh, and it was now Shiite death squads after Sunnis. If they would stop you in the road and your ID card said Omar, you were dead. I mean, that was the easiest way to know that you were a Sunni. But it's, it's, it's mostly names. And also there would be other cultural um, ways to know. What, what cassette did you have in your car? Were you listening to you know, Sunni lamentations, or Shiite lamentations, or were you listening to Sunni prayers? Do you, let's see if I can get this right, you may know this, uh, it's Sunnis do this and Shias do that when they pray? Oh, or it's the reverse, or that, or that? But it, it's as subtle as that. <laughs> you know, yeah, you've seen what the, you know, what, what uh, the prayer service looks like, and there's moments of, of you know, kneeling and moments of standing, but it, it, it is just a simple one moment within that prayer sequence where it's that or that. And that's how they know. And I had heard a story once about uh, four, three Shias who had been stopped uh, in a Sunni neighborhood. They were going to kill them all, and they said, "Say your prayers before you go." And one of them, you know, did the reverse. He, he, he wasn't, he wasn't a, a Shia. And the guy says, "What are you doing here? You know, this is the wrong place for you." And they let him go. It's as simple as that, and and as and as primal as 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 you know, reptilian brain as that sometimes. Deb, I'm wondering, you know, back in the in the, the day, back in the wonderful day, whatever, when you were covering the war in the Balkans, when you were covering the war in Lebanon and Rick too, you were regarded as neutral, you could travel everywhere, um, and you you were not considered a combatant. And the reason you have to travel now, why we have to travel now in places like this in armored cars, because you are considered a combatant, or you're considered a prize for kidnapping purposes yeah. and ransoms. Wh what I'm wondering in terms of what you think is whether or not indeed we, whether or not journalists in these places have indeed become combatants by virtue of embedding, by virtue of the kind of reporting sometimes that one might see on, on certain cable television channels here in America. Um, have we indeed become combatants? We're certainly regarded as that. We are regarded. Well, you certainly have to take that idea into consideration when you're out there. And I don't know. I think it's, it's going too far for me to say that we are combatants. But you certainly do recognize not just us, but anything Western. I mean, you know, this is what the contest is about. So simply by the restrictions on what we can do, you know, we're not telling the whole story many times. And we all have to recognize that. I, I always wanted to write something somewhere in the middle of that coverage saying, you know, hello, we are not telling that. We don't even get to the whole story because we can't get there. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing it through Iraqi eyes. It's all remote control. This is not journalism. You know, it's, it's as you know, it's mm -hmm. very discomforting to be there and mm -hmm. realize every compromise you make mm -hmm. to do this. Whether we're combatants, I, I can't go that far. But I, I can see that there's a an argument to be made that, that in some ways we are. Um, we certainly are. Melissa. Yeah, I was just reading a post in the Atlantic this morning that was raising the question of how is the best way to get information sort of a debate that linked various parties in this. And it, I think it was titled uh, Books, Blogs, or Twitter. And people were sort of taking sides in terms of which way. And it strikes me that um, your book is probably the only way to really tell the complexities and the nuances you know, of this story. I can't imagine it being told via blogs. I can't even imagine it being told any longer through newspapers, really. And certainly, I wonder, you know, Twitter's efficiency in doing it. Um, so I'm wondering how you think that this story, aside from your book, whether, in fact, it's going to be told 
to U.S. audiences or to Western audiences? And if so, who's going to be the one to tell it? And it where is it going to be found? No, you're right. And it, but it depends on how interested you are. Um, and I think this is now certainly true of Iraq and Iran. Iran's even a harder landscape uh, yeah. than Iraq because you can't even get there now. Mm -hmm. So your remote control is, I'm not even in the country. Um, but I, I think that there, there was no way to tell the refugee story except to write a book about it. Even a blog wouldn't have worked. I mean, I, I, I could do it for NPR, and they were very um, open to letting me do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and there wasn't anybody else who was. Mm -hmm. People would come in and out, but the problem with coming in and out is you were stuck with the, you know, there are two million of them, now what? And can mm -hmm. I ever go back if that's all I know? Uh, and to do the, 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 you know, the drilling down of collecting names, telling individual stories, it took a lot of work and a lot of resources for them to let me do that. There, it's not like a phone book no. um, that you can go and look up Iraqi refugees, you know, start at A. Um, and what people used to say about how they used to count refugees is, you know, you'd go to the refugee camp, count the, ten, count the tents, and multiply by five. Um, this was a refugee population that didn't live in camps. Uh, they, the, there, yeah. there are no camps anywhere. Uh, they can live wherever they want or whatever they can afford. So there were, you, that's why it's been so hard to count them, because mm -hmm. uh, you can't multiply by the tents. Um, I think that you, you, you can read about Iraq, and you can, in very specific terms, in some very good blogs. Um, and I hope they continue. Who knows if they will? Um, but there's a guy named um, uh, Vizer who writes a, a very comprehensive, he's, he's Norwegian. Um, you know, Juan Cole's got a good blog. What we haven't seen yet, and I'd hope that, that we would, because it started out that way, were Iraqis writing more. In 2003, um, when the blogosphere was not so developed in the Arab world, the Iraqis came right out of the gate with about 70. And this was a country that had come incredibly late to the internet, um, that the Americans brought all the technology that uh, Saddam had denied them. And they took to it like, I've never seen anything like that. Uh, in English, and Arabic, uh, there are still some sites. But the kind of analysis that you want from inside the country has not developed, and I suspect that part of the reason for that is that those bloggers have left, mm -hmm. that they're part of the exile community, and that's where they went. Riverbend, which was everybody's yeah. favorite for a long time, one of her last postings was, I'm crossing the border into Damascus, all I can do is cry, and then, poof, disappeared. Are they welcome in Damascus? Yeah, uh, yes, the Syrian government has been um, quite remarkably generous. Uh, maybe they didn't understand what they were getting into in the beginning. Um, but, you know, Syria, remember, they were the country, it, the Armenian genocide, they went to Damascus. Yeah. Uh, you know, they went to Syria. They, they have a history of taking people in. Um, in 2006, when the Israelis bombed um, Beirut and, and, and the south after Hezbollah kidnapped three soldiers, 150,000 Lebanese crossed the border. Fine. And Syrian civilians would go down to the border crossings. I would see them do it. And they would put their phone number up on the passport um, uh, window saying you can stay with me if you want and people did so there, it's a wow. it's a very uh, warm society and they weren't crazy about these Iraqis because for the Syrians you know Saddam and, and the Assads did not get along they were rival factions of the Ba'ath Party and so they didn't really know each other what Syrians thought of Iraqis were these cultured educated people because that was always their reputation but Iraqi society had become so degraded because of sanctions and, and, and the like, and people didn't travel anymore, that these ruffians arrived who, you know, didn't say please or thank you and um, were not very nice or polite, and Iraqis were a little taken aback at who these people were. Um, the most that they did was move out of the neighborhoods the Iraqis moved into. Um, but there's not been a lot of strife. Um, what happens to them in Lebanon is they essentially uh, live in their sectarian community. There's been more Christian Iraqis who've gone to Lebanon because the president's a Christian there and so is the head of the army. So they think, all right, maybe this is a little safer than any place else. Uh, the Shiites live with Hezbollah, the Sunnis move up to um, Tripoli. So in Lebanon, you know, they, they keep their sectarian coloration. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the presence of Al Qaeda in the elections. Uh, 
from what I understand, Al Qaeda views Iraq as a potential place to sort of set up shop as an Islamic state. And so you, you mentioned a little bit about their presence and role in terms of violence, but I'm wondering if there's a, any more strategic um, engagement that they're you know, doing there in terms of creating a stronger presence down the line. I think they like Yemen better now. I think Yemen's better for them. I think Iraq um, is not their place so much. You know, the Sunni population tolerated them because they thought they needed them um, in the early days because they were so overwhelmed by this, you know, juggernaut of Shia majority that, um, and then Al-Qaeda really, really blew it. Um, they went way past what was tolerable. You know, women couldn't buy cucumbers in the market because uh, because it was a, sh a sexual vegetable. Girls at five had to wear niqab. Um, you couldn't, uh, they, they just went way past what was tolerable. And so they have um, essentially not found much traction anymore in Iraq. The, uh, the only thing, I was reading this morning something interesting, and it makes sense in an Iraqi context, that the Americans are releasing uh, a lot of people from jail now. Uh, because they're turning over, you know, jail duties to, to the Iraqis. The problem for these uh, young men who are coming home to their villages, who were Al-Qaeda members, is that they are getting whacked by the, the tribal people in their village. So let's say that the reason they went to jail is because they got arrested after some policemen were killed. Okay, now it's a blood problem. Now it's a blood feud problem. And so and, and they, they get killed when they come home. Uh, by the family of the police officer that was killed when they were arrested. So these, these families are saying, I either have to pay blood money or my kid is going to go back into Al-Qaeda because they're the only ones that can protect him against this tribal retribution. Um, in terms of the election, I think that they, they probably will carry out some bombings. I'd be surprised if they didn't. But I, I just don't think that they are a force. I really don't. Um, Anybody who's got more experience in Iraq, say. I was in Iraq in prior to the surge in 05 to 06 to 07. I was in Bakuba, up in the Yala province for 15 months. And the Iraqi folks just, as she mentioned, just completely got tired of, in fact, that we rescued 42 Iraqis from an Al-Qaeda prison camp. The youngest child there was 14 years old, and he was policed up off the streets for smoking a cigarette. And so, they, as she said, they just got tired of, you know, they crossed line, gone too far, and they just threw their hands up and said, okay, and then when the sons of Iraq came on board, um, they just said, here, here, and here, and, and, and the peace just came, came, came down. And so, she, I, I concur, Al-Qaeda in Iraq is probably a, a done deal. Yeah. Uh, Dover, you said that the uh, U.S. government was blindsided on the disqualification of the uh, yep. cities. Uh, how did that, and given all the resources there, uh, how does that happen in Shalabi's relationship with that? Well, that's not as close as it used to be. <laughs> for good reason. Yes, and for good reason. Why? Here's, here's one, well, first of all, our ambassador doesn't speak Arabic. Um, and second, you know, since June, the military has been out of the cities. Um, and who could predict Ahmed Chalabi? You know, he, he, he is a very clever fellow. Um, his number two, Mr. Alami, the reason he hadn't moved earlier is because he was in jail for a year. He only got out in August um, of last year, and he was in jail for, never proven, uh, for having very close ties to a very, very radical Shiite um, outfit that had kidnapped a guy named, I forget his first name, his last name is Moore. He was a computer specialist and they took like six of them out of this building and um, General Petraeus said that they were held in, in Iran. Uh, and and he, the, Moore was like the last of the group that killed everybody else. He was the only one left alive. Um, and he was traded out uh, about four or five months ago. So uh, Al-Lami's background is very, very shady. Um, to know all of that is very difficult. In an embassy that um, almost all of their staff comes in for a one-year contract with three vacations. They're all young. Um, you know, what, what you're told as soon as you get there is you got to see them in about the middle of their posting. They don't know anything when they get there. Um, on the, on their, the way out, they're not interested in talking to you. 
and they you got to find them right in the middle where they kind of know something. It's the most bizarre situation I've ever seen in an embassy, and and how and so they can't really know much. And the guy who knew the most, Robert Ford, who does speak Arabic, is going to Damascus. He just got posted as the ambassador to Damascus, and it's Syria's gain and it's Iraq's loss because he was great. He was there in 2003. Then he went to Algeria and he came back, and he was he was an administrator, but he really knew what was going on. Um, but you know, it's not the first time that they have been blindsided from for some something that the Iraqis were up to, and especially Mr. Chalabi. We're uh, actually, the clock is a little bit uh, slow, and we have to give up this room. So I'm sorry to say that that's going to have to be the end. This was really, really interesting. Thank you. Thank you.